Welcome to the Pain Podcast, presented by Le Peuple Scientifique. We are thrilled to bring you a platform that unites clinicians, researchers, and pain advocates in sharing a pursuit, understanding pain. In this series of podcasts, we aim to bridge the gap between scientific knowledge and practical applications in the field of pain. Our episodes will feature insightful discussions with leading experts, exploring the latest research findings, innovative treatments and emerging trends in the realm of pain. Whether you are a healthcare professional seeking evidence-based practices, a researcher diving into the depths of the pain mechanisms, or a dedicated advocate striving to improve the lives of individuals in pain, you are welcome. Check out our website, get confident and competent in treating pain. Start today. This is the Pain Podcast by Le Pup Scientifique. And my name is Bart van Bruegem. I'm a pain specialist physiotherapist. I'm your host. This episode with James Bucoli. Professor James Bucoli is a psychologist. He's a professor at the School of Health Sciences at the University of New South Wales, Wales, which is in Sydney on the other end, um, heading to summer, James. And uh, as I know, you're also a senior researcher scientist of Neura, which is, um, we're talking about you today on about back pain, research, your work, um, and everything that excites you in that area so so welcome and uh, thank you for joining james oh thanks Bart. nice to chat to you again sure so so i think people are um is there anything people need to know about you before we we go james any statements yeah. or things yeah i think so so i i don't think i don't think any major disclosures other than they get my salary from um, the National Health and Medical Research Council in Australia. So that's for the fellowship. So um, I've never taken any money from industry um, yet, um, but everybody has their price. So that doesn't mean that I won't. Um, the, um, um, the other thing to say is that you're right. I am a psychologist, um, but I'm not a clinical psychologist. I've do I don't practice psychology. I never have. So I'm a clinical researcher um, and, and that has advantages and disadvantages. It means that I'm full-time research, um, so that's where my focus is. And I've always been focused, I guess, um, on since I started my research on low back pain. That's where I did my I did my PhD at Brunel University in the UK uh, before I moved to Australia. Um, and um, uh, yeah, so and then since then it's been full-time research. So. Uh, that, that clears up and i think if we just have the context of uh, of your your work is that you also um work with a team obviously there are many people in your team um um which in other podcasts we may come across one or two of those so these people which wow. is great so um i'm looking forward to to hear and see those conversations again or or recording them um, so you guys have been working on low back pain quite a bit, and uh, we thought it would be uh, a topic. It's not just low back pain. There's a big trials happening on CRPS. It's also in your interest of your group, which is um, really great. So, 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 what are you? Where are you sitting now? So, what we know now, what we need. Um, I, I always felt you have a very strong opinion, a very calculated, and also it should make sense what you're saying um and from my uh, experience uh, this will be very helpful to get this update from you james so so just fire off i would say 
Yeah, sure. So um, I, um, uh, as I said, I did my PhD at Brunel University in the UK. I, my supervisor was a um, Lorraine D'Souza. She was a physiotherapist, is a physiotherapist. I think she's actually now retired. But And I had a secondary supervisor who was a psychologist. So that's Chris Main. Um, and he was and is very eminent, still working. Um, he developed the fear avoidance beliefs questionnaire with um, Gordon Waddell and was really responsible um, in the late in, in the eighties and the nineties of really pushing forward psychological models of um, of pain, really of treatment, actually of interventions for low back pain and chronic pain. Um, a lot of those psychologists, actually, so just a tiny historical kind of perspective, a little bit. Um, because it's important, I think, to understand where we came from to know where we are today a little bit. So a lot of those psychological models during the 70s and the 80s um, were developed by psychologists um, who were clinical psychologists. So they had been trained to be a clinical psychologist, usually to treat people, to help people who have um, mental health disorders. So often anxiety disorders or depressive disorders. So they were trained to do that. And a couple of them got involved in pain clinics. Um, and when they got involved in pain clinics, they saw people, the tertiary pain clinics. So people had had pain for many, many years. Um, and they saw that they could maybe treat those patients, their anxiety and depression. And when they did, they found that pain and disability tended to improve as well. So this really started this enormous kind of um, um, development of um, uh, and investigations of psychology and pain. So how could psychologists help pain uh, people with pain? And that's really where the 1980s and 90, going into the 1990s and the 2000s kind of, that's why the fear avoidance model was developed. That really came from, um, um, from the anxiety literature. Um, and um, um, and that's where the the um, well a bit less so, but the kind of models around um, 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 self-efficacy, um, they were really from the from the Bandura's work in previous um, decades from the social cognitive kind of perspective. So that's where these models came from. They really came from clinical psychologists working in pain clinics. Um, interestingly to me, that um, although I think you couldn't talk to a person who treats pain, back pain in particular, at the moment, you couldn't talk to a single clinician who wouldn't say that psychology is important. They would all say, yes, I think psychology is important. It might be overplayed a little bit, but I think it's important. And yes, I know about fear avoidance. Yes, I know about catastrophizing. I've heard about catastrophizing. And yes, I understand a little bit about self-efficacy. That's something to do with increasing someone's confidence. I think people would generally say that. But if you look at the literature, if you look at the trials of CBT, so cognitive behavioral therapy, or any behavioral treatments for chronic pain and for, for low back pain, there was a systematic review that was published in 2021, I think. Amanda Williams was the lead of that, and that was in Cochrane. And that looked at all of the trials for low back pain, uh, sorry, for chronic pain, in which had used CBT. Um, and they found that there was no effect of CBT um, on pain or disability, like none. When you hear psychologists talk about this, and I've heard them, um, psychologists often say, you find a small effect. Well, the small effect is about eight points, so about six points on a 100 point scale of pain intensity. Well, that's beneath the threshold for detection 
And you wonder whether or not, if it's beneath the threshold of, of detection, that's not even a small effect. That's really a non, not non-meaningful effect. So I would generally say that psychology, although it really changed management, hasn't that been successful on its own? Possibly psychology in a pain clinic, in a tertiary pain clinic might be effective. But on its own, I, I wouldn't send my, if my mum had back pain, I wouldn't send my mum to see a psychologist, even if she had a lot of um, psychological risk factors um, for a poor outcome. I don't think I'd send her to see a psychologist. Um, so that's a little bit depressing, I think. Um, I think. Um, and that, that saying that as a psychologist, uh, but I don't think it's a depressing time to be working in pain. I think that actually it's a really exciting time. Um, there are three trials have been published in the last year and a half, um, which have had amazing effects actually on pain intensity uh, and on disability. And those effects are not just effects straight after treatment, but those effects are persistent effects. So that at one year, people are still have clinically meaningful and clinically important effects um, from, um, from these interventions. And these interventions for greater or lesser extent incorporate psychological principles into what are essentially physiotherapy type of interventions. So I think it's a really, really exciting time. Um, not as depressing as I initially <laughs> laid it out to be. So how is your group, um, how, how how did it come about? So you, you found like, oh my God, this is so bad. <laughs> so what we've done so far, well, uh, or not as good as we hoped at least. And then it was like a shift of the difference and, and still, obviously it's still relevant to the, the, the original work and CBT has been so, I could say the treatments you were referring to uh, are very psychologically influenced if uh, yeah. so so what is that what is that bit of psychology that is still or may have driving an effect in these treatments yeah it's a good question because um the first part of your question was how did i get here really and that was really because i worked with uh i'm a researcher called chris Maher. so when i moved to australia after i did my phd i moved to australia and um I actually took a couple of years out from a PhD and I went and ran a bar and a nightclub for two years, which was a lot of fun. And then I moved to Australia and thought, well, I should probably take my PhD. That actually qualified me to do something. Maybe I should take that a little bit more seriously. And um, Chris Maher and Kathy Wefshorgi were looking in at Sydney Uni, were looking for someone to help them set up their group because they just got some funding. And I went and worked with them. And Chris Maher is one of the most amazing researchers so that if you whatever research he finds, whatever result he finds from his research, you know, that's a true result because um, he pays attention very closely to sources of bias um, so that whatever result he gets, it's a true result. And there was, we had a program of research looking at different types of physiotherapy interventions um, and tested them against placebo interventions and placebo equivalents. And what we were finding was that lots of interventions that a physiotherapist do and a doctor, so these were medicines as well, and chiropractors, nobody gets off the hook here. Most of those treatments had small effects, very small effects. And when they're tested against placebo, those, effect, those effects tended to become even smaller. So um, that was incredibly powerful line of research to say that what's happening in clinical practice, what's available in, clinic, in clinical practice 
probably doesn't have the effects that a clinician thinks that they see whenever a patient um, comes to see them. It may have a small placebo effect, and that's enough to get someone off the, off the plinth and out of the room and into the street, but it's not a persistent effect. It doesn't last much beyond, beyond that, and they probably come back soon. So that's what that research found, and I thought it was great, but um, I got a little bit, I thought there could be more. Like, okay, well, it's great to find that things don't work. It's fantastic. But what does work? What approaches do work? And I'd known Lorimer Mosley for since I moved to Australia. And he had moved to Nura, where I am now. He had moved here. And he was also setting up a group. And I said, well, why don't we? Why don't I come to Nura? So I came, joined him at Nura. Very quickly, he left and went to another university in South Australia. And I stayed on at Nura and kind of developed some of these ideas. A lot of them, the provenance of those ideas really come from Lorimer's work. So this is, um, can we develop new treatment approaches that take all we know about pain and all we know about pain science and turn those into treatment approaches to help people with pain? Um, and then set up a team. And over the last 10 years, we've been trying to develop and test those with collaborators with Neil O'Connell from the UK and Ben Wan from South from Western Australia, and of course Lorimer and his team down in South uh, in South Australia as well. Um, yeah, so that's sort of how I got here. Um, and then what we ended up doing really uh, was um, um, testing the um, pain education. That was the first thing we did was is pain education, pain science education. Um, effective for um, um, for acute low back pain. Can you test, can you provide pain education over 90 minutes, two 90 minute sessions? And will that stop people from develop with acute low back pain, stop them from developing chronic low back pain? Um, and the first thing I think, well, the first thing I always think that someone should ask whenever someone says a treatment's effective or it's not effective, the first thing you should ask is compared to what? I think that's always the first question because that's the most, I think it's almost the most important question because that's what helps you understand whether or not it's important that 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 trial or that treatment effect is says anything to you as a clinician. So it's compared to what? And we decided in that trial for pain education for people with acute low back pain to compare pain education to a placebo pain education. Sounds a bit odd. Um, but um, because whenever I get money for a trial, I spend a year spinning my wheels trying to figure out what the right control group is. Um, and in the end, just before we were about to submit the protocol, Lorimer said, um, well, I want to know if it's I, I want to know if um, pain science education is better than just a chat with, with with a physio. So we call that chat with a physio. We call that sham pain education. And we got. 200 patients, half of them got pain pain science education and half of them got randomized. Half of them got um, a chat with a physio. We trained the physios how to not provide advice. That was hard <laughs> because that goes against all of the physio's DNA to give any advice at all or any education. They were trained just to get people to continue to talk. So like, okay, so how is it? How are things for you? And okay, you said that um, the, your back's really bad today. Tell me a little bit about that. And that was it really. No advice, trying to steer away from any advice or education. Um, and we were pretty convinced that this was, this, this was how to, this was going to work. I think we all were pretty convinced that, um, 
you could talk people out of their pain. Um, it turns out you couldn't. Um, the 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 effects of the trial were um, that there was no more effective pain pain science education was no more effective than um, this 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 sham education or chat with a physio, as Lauren would put it. Um, and 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 that's that's interesting. It's not that helpful. And it's interesting in one way, but but we've spent the next couple of years trying to understand what was it that didn't work. And how could we make that better? And we've figured that out with this type of analysis called mediation analysis, um, which we spent a long time thinking about that. Because as a physio, so I'm really, I'm on a, I'm on a roll here. So you just have to, ro- you have to roll yeah. with me. That's yeah, I'm, I'm rolling with you. I'm riding with you. So <laughs> I'm still, I'm still going strong. <laughs> good, good, good. So. Um, um, mediation analysis, it sounds awful. It's one of those things where it might be the thing that actually turned you off statistics when you were you, when you were doing an undergraduate degree, when you went to a statistics class and they said, right, let's talk about moderation and mediation. You know, oh no, this is too much. Um, but it's an e- it's actually really intuitive. If you are a manual therapist, um, and you'll have to pardon me as a psychologist explaining manual therapy to physios, but if you're a manual therapist and someone has back pain, you might want to do something to their back. You want to press on their back to try and to try and move the um, mobilize um, the vertebra to try and loosen the vertebra. And you hope that if you do that, that will change somebody's pain. So if you can loosen up a a, a, a um um a tight um what's the word I'm looking for? Not so it's a, a a tight vertebra. You can loosen that up. Um, I told you I wasn't a physio. Um, then that might change somebody's pain. Well. That's the mediator. So that's the first thing you want to do. You want to do manual therapy to to um, to 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 make the vertebra less stiff, and that will change pain intensity. So the making the vertebra less stiff is the mediator. It's the thing that we're trying to do to see if that has an effect on pain and disability. So that's all that mediation is. That's that's all, and we can investigate that in a trial. And so if you're doing pain education, for example pain science education what are you trying to do with pain science education you're trying to change the way people think about their pain and you hope that by doing that that will change their pain or disability and or disability so you can investigate that using mediation analysis and what we found was that some of the targets that the typical targets psychological targets that you think might be important like fear avoidance well it didn't matter we could change people's fear avoidance but that didn't lead to 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 um, reduce pain and disability, you could change people's catastrophizing, but that didn't lead to changes in in in, um, in um, pain either. Um, what you couldn't do from just pain education, pain science education, was improve someone's self-efficacy. That means pain self-efficacy. That means it didn't pain science education on its own didn't improve people's confidence that they could get on with the rest of their lives despite the pain. Because to do that, Bandura has laid out some really clever ways of doing that. And pain education didn't include that. But if you did include that, and you only had to increase self-efficacy a little bit, then that would change pain intensity. So we want to change the model a little bit. We want to adapt pain science education to include a little bit of self-efficacy training. And we believe that that will cause people to... um, um, to not develop chronic pain. So that's one of our big research areas at the moment. And we're pretty excited about, about that. 
Yes. So what is the excitement of the, let's say, the latest publications or the, the work today in this? Because it's moved, like you said, you're referencing a couple um, trials. Um, if I'm correct, there was at least um, first yeah. author, Matthew Beck, um, it was called Resolve. Yeah. Um, and there is the first author, Kent, which is, I think you referred to the group with Peter O'Sullivan in the western part of Australia. And you named also a third one. I'm not sure, so you can fill that in. Uh, uh, I think so I, I know, but I don't want to. I don't want to. <laughs> just back. in case it's not the right one. Yeah. That's right. So yeah. So um, yeah, those are the two trials, absolutely. And I did say those earlier, and I kind of like left it hanging a little bit. So I apologize about that. Those two trials. So there's a trial of a treatment called graded sensory motor retraining. Now that is my conflict of interest because I was very involved in that trial. I'm the lead author of the trial, got the funding to test this new treatment effect, the, this new treatment approach. Cognitive functional therapy, which is really, really well, uh, it's associated with, well, most strongly associated with Peter O'Sullivan. And there's pain reprocessing therapy, which is really associated with Yoni Asher in the, uh, um, in the United States. Um, and these, it's interesting to me because these are three separate approaches to try to treat people to try, uh, with chronic low back pain. They were developed by completely separate teams who don't generally collaborate, haven't collaborated. There might be some collaborations along the way somewhere, but the, those three separate treatment approaches developed by three separate research teams that when applied to patients, when provided to patients, um, produced real and meaningful changes in pain intensity and real and meaningful changes in disability that were um, still there after one year. Um, so if I talk a little bit, just tiny bit about graded sensory motor retraining, so GSR, as we're sort of calling it, everyone's got an acronym, that's ours. Um, this really takes the principles of um, pain science education uh, mixed with a development, I guess, of graded motor imagery, although not just that, kind of more than that, um, to persuade people, essentially, so a little bit more than this, but to persuade people that their backs are strong, that um, the negative consequences of back pain are not um, 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 inevitable, um, and that they can get back to their lives um, um, without having back pain for the rest of their life. Um, so those are three very simple principles, right? So that they can move in a way that doesn't cause them pain, that doesn't damage their back. And we just found a we just found a clever way of doing that, I think. Clever, and this is basically Ben Wan's work. Ben Wan's done a series of pilot studies um, looking at um, tactile acuity training on the back or tactile location training, moving into the some of the stuff that noise involved with the 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 um recognize apps of the left right judgments um, um um imagine movements and then into some actual real movement so there's a whole treatment program there um that lasts over 12 weeks if you that that um um if that's compared to again sham treatment there's a real meaningful effect on that um at 12 months we found that people um um who had that treatment 50% of them had no disability at 12 months, no longer reported disability. Well, I don't want to oversell it. Oh, well, just too bad. I'm going to oversell it. Um, that's a cure for 50% of people at 12 months. That's a cure. No disability, 
zero on a Roland and Morris, 50%. I think that's pretty interesting to me. To me, that's an exciting time. It's an exciting time to be a clinician because there are these three new therapies. Um, cognitive functional therapy isn't quite so new, but it's been around for a while. But three trials that have shown that these new this new treatment approach um, which combines physiotherapy with psychology and with pain education is all that they each of these take a separate approach, but they are producing these long term effects in very high quality trials. We're sure about the results of these trials. That's the main thing here. Physiotherapy, in my impression, and psychology has been. Um, um, what's the word? What's a nice word of saying this has We've often got ahead of the data in our field. So we've produced interventions um, that sound reasonable. They sound reasonable and they sound logical. Um, and we have got ahead of that and we've sold courses all over the world. And, and then when we've tested those interventions in clinical trials, we've found that actually they're no better than placebo or they're no better than just having a chat. Now, you know, that's good if you're like, I send my mum to have a chat with a nice physio if she feels better afterwards. But I want to know whether or not the actual specific thing that's happening is actually meaningful. It's not just, it's more than just, just a chat. And we now know that with these three therapies, because they're um, the one in the, the, the pain reprocessing therapy was compared to an open label placebo and usual care. Um, cognitive functional therapy was compared to usual care and greater sensory motor retraining was compared to, um, to, to, a, to a credible placebo. I can tell you a tiny bit about that placebo, not too much, but I, what I can say is that um, the placebo was credible. I know it's credible. Um, it was delivered by a physio at Neuro, and, um, 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 and he was, you know, he's a good physio. Um, but, you know, it's like in clinical practice, you might get a present from somebody who does well, um, and we sometimes in the trial, we would get, we don't encourage this by any way, by any means. Sometimes a physio would come in with a bottle of wine and say that, you know, someone was so thrilled because they'd spent years and years in pain that they, that, um, that they wanted to give a gift to the physio. So we put those all on the shelf and waited for the end of the trial to either drown our sorrows or celebrate. Um, twice I came into the room and I was like, oh, good, which physio got that this time? And it was the, the physio who delivered the sham intervention. So. He, de he delivered sham intervention over 12 weeks. The patients did so well on the sham intervention that they gave him bottles of wine. So we know that they still felt that the sham was a real therapy and they got better. They got better. But importantly, graded sensory motor retraining was better than that. So and we know that from the trial. So, yeah, we were excited by this. Very, very excited by it. And we just got to figure out the next step. So, so what is the next step? Um, we want to collaborate with a company called Noi, you may have heard of, um, who are experts in um, delivering clinical training to the care community or to the, um, and, um, and this sounds, uh, because Noi wasn't involved in this trial at all. Um, but it's not, it's not, it's not my desire. It's not my life's work to develop courses and run courses and train physios. There are people or physios, psychologists, um, you know, the long tail. Um, so it's not, it's, uh, um, we could develop those courses and sell and, and sell those courses to, or train people, not sell them, but train people how to deliver this therapy, uh, greater sensory motor retraining. 
in private practice or in their practice. Um, but it's it's just not, it's just, I don't do that. I'm not that person. So um, we want to collaborate with Noi to develop a training program and roll that tra- training program out, test it during its rollout. I'd like to also test it. I want to make sure that it's that, that, that physios want to do this, that they're happy to do it, that they can do it. And the patients are also happy to be treated with this type of therapy. Because I want to know all of that as well, because I don't, we want to make sure that when this is rolled out into clinical practice, it's the correct thing. It works and patients are happy and, cl- and therapists are happy to deliver it. So um, that's the next step. So uh, maybe in a nutshell, what is the the, the skill set you need to deliver to deliver this kind of treatment uh, as uh, let's call it GSR? Yeah, yeah. yeah. skill set. Um, so I can tell you who we had on the trial. Right, this the, the, it was delivered on the trial by five therapists, um, and one of them. So we had four physios. Um, um at various stages of their careers a couple of them were senior um they've been practicing for like about 10 years um we had a exercise physiologist who had been practicing for two or three years and then came back to do a phd um and um we had a physiotherapist who was very new so we had a range of people who were deliveries i think i think this can be delivered by anyone um you've got to have a bit of an open mind when you think about this um if uh um, um, gsr um it it looks odd you think this isn't what physios do because a lot of it involves touching the back for example to try and get people to understand where they're being touched on the back in a more accurate way because the underlying the, the, the underlying theory here and this is what we tell patients that your brain has stopped you've had back pain for a long time your brain has stopped processing information that's coming from your back in an accurate way and we can show you that because if we touch you on the back it's hard for you to tell us accurately where you're being touched but we can train that and you can get better and better at that and then when you watch people behaving or moving in particular ways it's provocative ways that is also uh, provoking you don't like it don't like it don't like to watch that so that's getting your brain ready for the next step the next step is to if you for example get somebody to um, so if you say to somebody, can you bend over someone with back pain and roll your back when you bend over? Often they don't, but they can't tell they're not doing that. They roll over, they bend their back with pretty straight, um, for example. But if you get them to watch that in a mirror, watch themselves perform that, people never get to see them doing those types of behaviors in a, in a mirror behind them. So, And then you show them that that's what they're doing. They can train themselves or rehearse themselves, rehearse and practice, that they can get better and better at that so that the information that's coming from their back is more accurately represented in their brain, more accurately processed in their brain. And over time, over 12 weeks of doing that, this is a very kind of cartoon version of what happens. But over time, um, our patients' pain decreased um, substantially and their disability um, was extinguished over 12 months. Um, so does it work for everyone? Not sure about that. There was a pe- couple of people in the trial. There was a little group of people in the trial who started off with high disability and that didn't change at all. And when we look at all their scores, it's pretty clear that they just didn't buy this approach. They just they just had no the idea that kind of things improve, they just didn't believe that. 
They just didn't get it. They were very locked into this idea that, no, I need something done to my back. Um, and they didn't improve um, over the 12 months. Um, so I'm not sure if it's involved. I think anyone can do it. I don't think every patient is appropriate for it. Yeah. So so if the patients have to believe, I reckon that the therapist, the deliverer of the care also should be very comfortable with delivering this kind of treatment. I think gonna... Yeah. Yes, I think that the therapists have to be open to that. Absolutely. That's absolutely correct. I don't think I don't think this is the therapy that you can deliver if you don't believe in it. If you don't Yo. if you believe in the approach, I don't mean believe that it's going to work, but in the underlying approach, I think that's that's pretty important. Yeah, or the understanding of how these mechanisms may work because it may look a bit funny, right? Like you said, touching people on the back and asking them to locate on a screen or um, I would definitely recommend people uh, uh, listening to um, to read uh, the paper. And we'll make sure there is a link uh, so you can have an idea. And the protocol as well has been published before so you can get a broad idea of what this treatment involves. And it definitely needs some slightly different skill set but it's really interesting like you said is that the, the, the both patient and therapist needs to be very comfortable in the understanding of this of of a trajectory of the, they go through and supporting yeah. each other yeah and all of that stuff that, that you teach actually all of the stuff that you teach around dims and sims like de danger signals and safety signals and all of that stuff that pain is not just an output from the back it's not just there's no pain system that produces or there's no pain signals that go up into the brain. This is how psychologists used to and still do talk about pain. They talk about pain signals. They don't talk about nociception. They don't talk about danger signals. And this is the key bit. This is why this I think this is a psychology, psychological treatment. I think physios think it's a physio treatment. It doesn't really matter. It's in there somewhere. But um, I think that this is the key bit, I think, that um, when the language is correct, and the de-threatening side of that is correct. And the understanding of modern pain science is, uh, is, is there, then I think any physio can deliver this. Uh, last question on this. So do you think that the, 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 the difference between the original pain education approaches is basically teaching people, um, discussing it, if you like, the different strategies using metaphors, but this also involves a very physical aspect, like a very... I would say an experiential part in the mediation, because you, you've been working and thinking about this, of course. How important was that touch uh, in in this therapy? So that's a great, 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 and really super interesting question, Bart, because I don't think that pain education would do it on its own. Pain science education, sorry, would do it on its own. I think that it was, I think that experiential bit and that experiential bit that I can feel myself getting better at, for example, the tactile acuity training. I can feel myself getting better at left-right judgments. And it's not, I don't expect to necessarily to have any pain reduction because of that, but I can, I'm on the trajectory of getting better, of recovery. And that I think is only, can only be achieved when it's experienced. I think that was a very, very important part of it. I I think you can do, I think you can do, you can do explain pain on its own, but one of the things we do know about explain pain is that, um, I'm some hovering between the different expressions of pain science education, explain pain, but you know what I mean? So um, that we know that actually improves the effects of other treatments as well. And I think that this is one of the things that this, this tight package of this is pain education, and this is how this is expressed 
in your body. This is how it's expressed, um, and this is how you can learn from that. I think that was really important. Yeah, yeah, I can see that from my clinical experience as well. That that bit is it's very it's very hard not doing it because it's very intuitively. Uh, I think for psychologists, more the other way around, perhaps yeah. for some of them. Although I see these changes, at least in my country quite um uh, there's a shift obviously that it's more appropriate to do this um experiential learning if you like and it's, it's is it just that i can't i can't help myself asking one more question so where uh, let's say resolve and restore so let's say the east versus west uh, australia approaches uh, <laughs> cfd like and gsr <laughs> It feels to me very much where where CFT is going straight into exposure and with supporting people that it's safe to move and that's actually they get some permission to move. If I can, I think that's even a citation. Um, um, but where where they actually do have the very same a very similar approach and objective and maybe an underlying idea the principle is like it's safe to do it and you can do it and let's try it and i will will we go through an experiential learning whether it's very technical if you like or very on a the idea of touching people and the other uh route is more about breathing for example as as part of of a uh, an experiential um activity if you like where with um with people would experience, well, I, I can do this. This is pretty amazing. And then they start exploring that feeling. Um, would you uh, would you agree on that? That actually these methods are not that different, uh, but it's a different approach to to make the same thing happen. I think that's it exactly. But and one of the things I'll tell you about those three trials as well. The other thing I got from those three trials was that the CFT was tested on people with severe disability. So this was about 14 on a, on, on a roll to Morris out of 24. Um, G, um, 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 GSR was, um, was tested on a group of people with the, with, uh, with um, uh, um, 11 on, on a 10, actually on a roll to Morris of 10 and pain reprocessing therapy on people with pain intensity of four. So, I think, and we said that in our trial, there was a group of people who had high disability that didn't really work for. So maybe they're more appropriate for CFT, the CFT approach. Um, our approach we know is appropriate for people with moderate, well, it's not really moderate, but a, but sort of moderately severe pain intensity on, and, and disability. Um, and the pain reprocessing therapy, which is really more talking therapy and asking people to do these behavioral experiments, but no hands-on. And that's really delivered mostly by psychologists, primarily by psychologists. That is good for people who are at a low end of pain and disability, severity, pain severity. So I would say that I'd be really interested to explore this, but clearly these trials were tested on clearly different groups of people. CFT maybe for people who, do, who are the, at the more, the more severe end, um, um, GS, uh, GSR for people at the at the usual kind of person you might see in a clinic in a clinic, and um, pain reprocessing reprocessing therapy for people um, who have who are, who are, who are the walking well. Um, that's how I would see this, and I think that each one of these approaches takes a different way of doing the same thing. So I think I think we got it. I think we covered most we can talk about hours <laughs> hours about hours enjoy about it. It. Um, really enjoy it. and it, it's it's lovely because it, it's sort of really 
really is understanding that we're actually heading to something that is successful, that is is good enough, at least from a um, uh, clinical differences are relevant for patients and for therapists. And these approaches needs to be, we need we need to build a skill set for that. And and from our LaPup scientific background, we sort of feel like we're trying to push people to be more physios, to be more, more interested in psychology and psychologists being more interested in in the physics and the the mechanisms and the things that the physios do love to talk about. So um, this seems to put things nicely together. So, so thank you for, for doing that, James. No problem. I really enjoyed it, Bart. Thank you very much indeed. Indeed. So so we're going to wrap this up for now and, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. We, we did. <laughs> we enjoyed this chat. Um, and we will we will follow up on this for sure. Um, as uh, listeners, we, we need you guys. <laughs> we need you all uh, to get on board and, uh, and uh, getting your skill set ready to, to deliver these kinds of therapeutic approaches that uh, seem to do really well. And it's uh, exciting times, as you said, exciting times in, in, in the world of pain. <laughs> um, and there's a lot to gain. So uh, thank you for listening. Uh, thanks again, James. Um, Thank you for everything and um, see you and uh, you can listen to us in two weeks. uh, Next episode. Not sure who's lined up yet, but uh, we'll be exciting again. Thank you.